You're listening to the Midlife Mastery Podcast. My name is Peter Fritz, and this show is all about mastering your money, your time, and the best time of your life, your midlife, of course. Welcome back to the Midlife Mastery Podcast. This is uh, session number 36, so you'll find the corresponding blog post for this episode over at midlifetribe.com slash 36. And today we're talking about belief, or more to the point, self-belief. And uh, I've given this a lot of thought over the last couple of months, and um, I think that there are probably four different levels of belief, and I, I really believe that <laughs> – I really think that the first three uh, – will really kill any of the dreams that you have. And so you really need to get to a point where you get onto the fourth level of belief. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to have a little skip down memory lane and talk about when I was younger. Um, when I was 14, most of my peers uh, took part-time jobs either at the local grocery store, packing groceries, or at the uh, or at the drive through bottle shop or liquor store, as you would call it in the US. Um, but I always felt that I had to be different. So I rang the local gym owner every single day for at least two weeks straight until the guy agreed to meet me um, and eventually gave me a job, paying me the princely sum of three bucks an hour. Um, so instead of, pack- <clears throat> instead of packing groceries, I got exclusive access to a ride-on mower, which was heaps of fun. Um, the gym was actually on a fairly large property with a running track and tennis courts and all that sort of thing and a dam out the front, uh, sort of a, a small lake. So there was a lot of grass that had to be cut, so I had a ball. Um, cutting the grass at that place. That was one of the many different jobs I did there, including cleaning the uh, the spas and the saunas, the swimming pool, setting up the gym, emptying rubbish bins, cleaning toilets, the works. You know, I, I did it all. But it was a lot of fun. And um, I also got to um, see as much spandex eye candy as I could swallow. And uh, for all of that, I, I got paid the, um, the sum of three bucks an hour, which eventually went up to four bucks an hour when I asked for a raise. Um, but from as young as I can remember, being like everyone else always scared me. And as a 50-year-old now, I've been 50 for two weeks, it still kind of does. And I don't know why exactly, but I've always wanted to be very deliberate about my choices and to take the road less traveled. Uh, I even registered the domain name normalscaresme.com a while ago. I don't know if it's expired because I've never used it, but um, that's the extent to which I've always felt the need to be different to most other people. Um, I tend to instinctively rail against the herd and I I go looking for excitement somewhere on the fringes, not weird, quirky stuff. Um, it's just that each time I conform to the masses, I feel like someone sitting on my chest and squeezing the life out of me and I have to escape. Uh, this even applies to sports. I never really warmed to football or cricket or tennis. For me, motor racing, deer hunting and mountain climbing were much more exciting. And by the way, I never killed a deer or anything else for that matter. Deer hunting was more sort of a, it was a game of walking silently in the bush with my dad with a rifle over my shoulder. Kind of like meditation, but with a dash of testosterone thrown in. When my best friend started drinking and doing drugs at 16, I remember that I recoiled and our friendship soon ended. Uh, later, he went on to lose his job due to the excessive drinking, and his boss described him as unemployable. His two brothers fared a lot worse, and I'm pretty certain that one of them did time in prison as well. Raised by their single mother, who I'm sure did her best, her name was Coralie, lovely woman, these boys, they lacked for a decent role model, uh, male role model. 
The fact is their father left when they were very young and he devoted precious little time to them after that. I probably would have seen him visit once every few months and just for a couple of hours and no one ever took his place. So it was almost inevitable that they would run off the rails. On the other side of the fence, and I mean literally on the other side of the fence because we were neighbours, my dad was the kind of man that every young boy needs. He was hardworking, principled and family focused, and he showed me a path, and yet he gave me the latitude necessary to forge my own. So as I entered my teenage years, my mum moved from the lead more into a support role, and together they both taught me to believe in myself. Now, there's a mountain of evidence uh, that illustrates how critical this kind of support is um, during a child's development. Our earliest years are imprinted with the behaviours that we see in our parents. And later, particularly from about the ages of 10 to 12, especially for boys, we seek guidance on how to behave and how to think. We look to our parents and we watch everything that they do. We don't often listen to what they say, but we certainly watch everything that they do. We observe how they resolve conflicts, how they embrace opportunities, and how they deal with risk. We watch for signs of self-limiting beliefs and their ability to handle uncertainty. So in the absence of these, what I would call top-level or A-level influences, we tend to seek out our cues from elsewhere, like TV and social media and celebrities and that kind of thing. And some of these can be positive, but um, many of them are unhelpful and plenty more are toxic, in fact. So since I was little, I, I kind of knew that I was destined for great things. And I don't really know what I mean by great things. I mean, there were phases there where I thought I was going to be stinking rich and have a private jet and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, the fact is that that stuff doesn't really motivate me anymore. But I always believed that I was a little bit different and a bit better than average or that I had the capacity to be better than average. And most of this belief came from my parents who told me that I could be anything that I chose. Um, I don't ever recall them comparing me to other people or placing limitations on my potential, no matter how outlandish my aims were. I was very fortunate to receive this kind of positive reinforcement because I know a lot of kids don't. Uh, But in the absence of role models like these, it becomes our job to instill in ourselves the self-belief that's needed. Indeed, even, even with the benefit of mentors and role models like I had, and I had some very good ones and I still do, we have to reinforce our self-belief almost daily to counter the negative messaging that we see all around us. And I still have to do that too. After all, everything is ultimately up to us. It's all our fault, as Gary Vaynerchuk calls it. And I understand what he means by that. We have to take responsibility for how we feel about things and more to the point, how we respond to to, uh, to things that happen to us. But as we commit to becoming our number one fan, our own number one fan, it pays to think about the four different stages of belief because I believe only one of them will carry us through to our dreams. So stage one, I call it is, I don't believe it's possible. Now, I saw a lot of this in my late teens hanging around with the wrong crowd, and the power of influence is never more pervasive, I think, than during this first blush of adulthood. These people had very low standards, and they protected them like a prisoner covets his cigarettes. To aspire to anything beyond a beaten-up panel van, a bag of weed, and a bottle of Jack Daniels was met with swift ridicule. They would say things like, what, you think you're better than us or something? You know, it was, uh, that was the typical response. Such limiting thinking, though, is everywhere. As we age, it manifests in things like ambivalence, resignation, and a posture that deflects ambition before it even has a chance to take root. It's safer not to dream. We anaesthetise ourselves with a warm blanket of conformity. We say things like, no one I know works from home. None of our friends live that side of town. 
we'd never buy one of those. We're not snobs, you know. Strangely, as soon as we decide to believe that something might be possible, the evidence to support it appears all around us, and we advance to stage two. So stage two is, it's possible for others. Stepping up from not believing is believing something's possible for others, but just not us. It goes something like this. It's okay for her. Her parents are both lawyers. He was bound to get that promotion. He's such a kiss ass. <laughs> her business is crushing it. She must be lucky. No wonder their, their marriage is perfect. Look where they live. This level of belief is the most dangerous because it brings the comparison game into play, which we know is unwinnable. Sadly, many of us continue to play this game. So stage three is, I believe I can. Now we're getting somewhere. Most ambitious sorts, those who reject the comforts of average, spend most of their days here. They read the right books, they follow prominent thinkers, and they harbour exciting dreams. They believe they have a shot. They want a better life, filled with all the things that will make them happy. They listen to podcasts on, a, on their daily commute. There's a vision board in the den and a long list of goals on a piece of paper somewhere. They're on the path. But there's not much action. They lose motivation. If only I could take a month off work, I'd start writing my book, they say. Over time, their lack of action builds a belief that they're a someday person, not a today person. And with each delay, each excuse, their life inches closer and closer to its end. Their dreams go unfulfilled and they die with the music still in them. I've seen a lot of this with my peers. A new idea pops into their head, an opportunity, a lucky break, a way forward, and they're buzzed about it for a week or two. I've been there too. I know what it's like. It's exciting. It's hard to sleep. Your energy levels are through the roof and all you can see is a river of possibility two miles wide and five miles deep. But soon the buzz dies out, replaced by the harsh reality of the grind, the tedious, soul-crushing work. And so they quit before they ever really begin. For most people, it only takes two or three of these before they slip back into the second or even first stage of belief, and chances are that's where they'll stay until they die. The reason this happens is that we're looking for clues that we're doing it right. We need validation. But believing that you can and consuming inspirational or instructional content just isn't enough. To make it through stage three and onto stage four, you have to do something. Not once or twice, but probably a thousand times, maybe more. You have to screw up, you have to iterate, you have to experiment and refine. And I'm sorry, but there's just no other way. I'm sure there are a couple of lucky unicorns. There always are in every field of endeavor. There's always unicorns. But... Even those can be deceiving. Um, oftentimes, somebody will come onto your radar and you'll think, where the hell do they come from? Look how successful they are. Look how great they are. But what you don't see is the 10 to 15 years of struggle that went before that, all the practicing, all of the hard work that they went through without anybody noticing before finally someone noticed. Now, sure, you need to learn from great teachers because otherwise you just get overwhelmed by, you know, searches on Google all the time. There's so much information out there, you just become paralyzed by it. But more than learning from good teachers, you have to act. You still have to act and you have to be consistent about it. I don't have any free time. I really don't. So what I do is I wake at 5.30 and I write and then I reconvene at 7 or 8 o'clock and I do the same thing again. The people that I've invested my own money to learn from are listed actually at the end of the post. If you go to midlifetribe.com slash 36, you'll see them listed there. And trust me, if you think you can go out there and just learn from your mistakes, 
you won't live long enough to make them all and you'll quit before you make any progress. So good teachers are very important to help you to know what you don't need to know and to help you focus on what you do need to know and to take you through it step by step because this is the problem of choice that we face in just about everything in the world is that we are confronted with so much of it that we get paralyzed by it and we constantly second guess ourselves and question, is this the right choice? Is this the best choice? Is this the choice that I should be using now? And we all really need somebody who can teach us oftentimes what we already know, many times, granted, stuff that we don't know or that we think we know. But even when it's stuff that we know, we need someone to take us through it step by step and say, okay, you don't need to worry about that now. That comes later. Right now, you just need to focus on this. And we need people like that. So... Over time, you become less concerned with validation and visible progress, and instead you commit to doing great work, no matter how long it takes to make a dent. And after you do that for a while, stage four begins to take hold. And stage four is, I believe, the critical stage of belief or of self-belief to be able to actually fulfill your dreams and achieve the things that you want. And stage four is, I believe I will. Stage three was, I believe I can. Stage two was, I believe it's possible. Um, and stage one was, I don't believe it's possible. The um, the subtle and powerful distinction here is the difference between believing you can and believing you will. And this is really where you want to be because the excuses evaporate and the barriers fall and the sun breaks through the clouds. When you believe that you will, then progress finally occurs. And paradoxically, the outcomes that you seek, whether it's freedom, authority, respect, wealth, meaning, they cease to be the goal. The goal is to overcome the resistance and just do the work, as Stephen Pressfield puts it. That becomes the new goal. The outcome that you seek is to become the person who does what needs to be done, whether you feel like it or not, because you know you must, because to not be that person is something that you just cannot abide. And ideally, it's where there's an overlap between, I think, four main things. Number one, something that you're passionate about, something that you really enjoy talking about, something that you find yourself often commenting about uh, with friends. It's got to be something which you have a genuine interest in. Uh, And number two, it's something which um, leverages your natural gifts or your natural talents. I think this is also very important because, um, sure, any skill can be learned, but the things where you have a natural gift or talent are so much easier to excel at because, well, that comes easily to you. Um, You solve problems quicker and you uh, are able to engage with new ideas around these skills faster than other people. So number one, something that you're passionate about. Number two, something that you have a natural gift or talent with. Number three, a cause that is greater than yourself. I think this is critical too, because if you're just doing something that uh, you love, that you're naturally good at, but which really only serves you, which really only engages you, you'll get bored with it after a while. If you could think of just about anything that you love doing, if you did it every single day and you were the only one who benefited from that, you would tire of it eventually. But if it's something which benefits other people, which can have um, an expanding impact on a growing number of people, then that's something that's very hard to walk away from. And the satisfaction that you draw from that, from doing something of value which benefits other people, um, I don't think that diminishes over time. I think that grows over time. So number four then is 
an operating environment that feels right to you. And I've talked about this before when it comes to um, career choices and working from home and that sort of stuff. And I think something that is so often overlooked when people are thinking about what do I want to do, how do I pursue my passion, what is the kind of life that I want to have, they'll chase often the uh, the surface level things which are easy to measure and easy to identify, like you know how many <clears throat> how many hours they work, what kind of work they do, how much money they make, um, how visible they become online, that sort of stuff. But a lot of people forget the the question of the environment that they work in. How do they want to work? What do they want a typical day to look like? You know, where do they want to operate from? What what will be their surroundings? Um, you know, will they work in groups on their own? Um, in a corporate environment, at home, remotely on the road, you know, what sort of environment do they want to work in? And I think this is often overlooked. So if you can combine these four things, where you're doing something you're passionate about, something you love, something which um, which uh, amplifies or takes advantage of your natural gifts and talents, something which is uh, a cause that's greater than yourself. It doesn't have to be anything global. It doesn't have to be curing cancer. It could be anything that benefits other people, whether that is a need or a desire or a wish that other people have. It could be entertainment. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose. Um, and then operate and then work in an environment that feels right for you. If you, can combine, if you can combine these four things, you're going to be a very happy camper and you've got a far greater chance of succeeding at becoming the person that you want to become and living the life that you want. So anyway, whether you're writing books or consulting with clients, teaching courses, making things, selling things, whatever it is, you're never going to climb your mountain if it's all about the short game or a superficial vanity metric like fame or money or even, heaven forbid, followers on social media. You might scramble to the top of a mountain that you're climbing and get a glimpse of the view, but you're going to fall off the other side and proclaim mountain climbing a fool's errand. So believing that you will reach your dreams automatically takes the pressure off. You know that you'll get there in the end. So now you can focus on daily practices instead of daily outcomes. It's a subtle but very powerful distinction. You're now focusing on what you do versus what you're going to get. When you focus on daily practices versus daily outcomes, the serendipitous nature of cause and effect can work in your favor. This is something that you can't fake. You have to live it day to day. You have to know it in your bones. Look at any of the success stories you admire. I mentioned this before, but always you'll see a lengthy backstory of a person's daily commitment to doing great work without reward or accolade. I just heard Kathy Heller describe how Ellen DeGeneres practiced her monologue in a flea-infested basement for seven years before landing on the Johnny Carson show, and then her career finally began. It's about showing up day after day because the alternative is unacceptable to who you are and who you want to become. These days, I'm pragmatic about what I believe, not as a means to self-soothe any lack of belief, but rather to direct my energy where I can have the greatest impact. If I look back on the things I've done over the last 40-odd years, it really is this single tenet, believing that I will, that's carried me through. It's the one thing that's made all of my outlandish dreams come true. The things I've done over the last 40 years, when I look back, I sometimes shake my head in amazement think, did I really do that? Was that really me? It's been a hell of a ride so far. And I mean, hell, I'm, I think I'm less than at the halfway mark, as I've spoken about before. So anyway, once you make this pivotal decision from I believe I can to I believe I will, then I guarantee your life will change and it'll never be the same again. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. 
Thanks a lot for tuning in again. Um, as I said, you'll find the corresponding blog post for this over at midlifetribe.com slash 36. And if you haven't already gotten yourself a copy, I mention this um, every couple of episodes, grab yourself a copy of uh, 15 Ideas for Midlife Mastery. You'll find that over at midlifetribe.com slash 15 ideas, whether it's with words or numbers, you can write that any way you like. Um, it's about 60 odd pages long, full color, landscape format, um, perfect for reading on a laptop or an iPad, and it won't cost you anything. Um, just go to midlifetribe.com slash 15 ideas and you can get that for nothing. So until next week, that's it for me. Enjoy the rest of yours. And here's to mastering your midlife. See you then. Bye-bye.